This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. And today I'm chatting with David Viviers of the University of Bangor about the Great Defiance, how the world took on the British Empire, out with Penguin in 2023. David Viviers is a lecturer in early modern history at the University of Bangor. He read at the University of Kent, where he also completed his MA and earned his PhD in 2015. His thesis was a study of the East India Company in South Asia in the 17th and 18th centuries, exploring in particular the ways in which informal social networks shaped the formation of an early modern colonial state. He stayed at Kent to take up the position of postdoctoral associate before moving on to Queen Mary University of London to undertake a four-year Leverhulme Early Career Fellowship in the School of History in 2018. He joined the School of History, Law, and Social Science at the University of Bangor in 2022, where he teaches courses on 17th century England, early modern Asia, and and global history more widely. He is the author of numerous articles and his The Origins of the British Empire in Asia, 1600 to 1750, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. With William A. Pettigrew, he edited The Corporation as Protagonist in Global History, 1550, 1750, out with Brill in 2018, and I'll note that is open access. Thank you for that. Much appreciated. Um, the Great Defiance, How the World Took on the British Empire, came out in May of 2023 with Penguin. So David Viviers, uh, David, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. Thanks so much, Michael. Thanks for the introduction. I appreciate that. That made me sound a lot uh, more accomplished than I feel. But uh, yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for taking the time and the interest in the book. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I've been I've been eager to have you on for um, for a couple months now. So I'm, I'm happy to finally chat with you. Um, and before we get into the Great Defiance, um, please tell us a little bit about yourself and your um, intellectual trajectory. And I don't know how you came to become the historian that you are now. Gosh, uh, that's a big question. Yeah, I mean, I was um, I was really interested. Uh, I was at university in the British Empire, but almost in like a boy's own sort of adventure way. These are great stories of heroics and glory forged on foreign shores amongst strange people, and um, and so that was my sort of trajectory at undergrad. And you know, then obviously you, know, you become educated in the kind of theoretical and conceptual frameworks around it. Um, and then I became more in, interested in uh, in the way in which empire developed um, with a particular emphasis on um, a, a kind of you know, subverting that usual narrative and uh, and lens coming from the kind of European or British perspective and, and particularly interested in the people that encountered the British and, and how they did that. And um, and so for my for my PhD, I really looked at the way uh, um, overseas trading companies like the East India Company, which is a good example of 
you know, major success story, you know, relentless rise and becoming the largest corporation, but also the largest territorial imperial power in South Asia in the 18th and 19th century. And looking at that and saying that, you know, perhaps that's a more complicated developed by the company, its origins being less in London and with the superiority of of, uh, of the British uh, uh, and more in the sort of way in which uh, the English and later British were able to um, you know, ingratiate themselves with the people that they meet and and work within the existing systems within Asia, which were often quite sophisticated and, and often uh, far more uh, effective and developed than that in Europe at the time of the early modern period. And so the success largely came in in, in work, willing to work with those apparatus, as opposed to perhaps the Dutch East India Company that often worked against those and attempted to subvert them or destroy them through violence. And and so um, by the time I finished my PhD and, um, and, and looked at this idea of the colonial state as perhaps not being a European invention, but more this sort of uh, the sort of polity which emerges when uh, you've got sort of European and non-European agency shaping the sort of parameters of of the colonial presence. So I so I I was more lucky a, enough to do a, a kind a, of a, sim- a symbiotic uh, relationship. Yeah, between I think, give and take, um, you know. I think that's yeah the, probably the best way to describe it. When you know, yes, the company and the British rely on charters issued by the British Crown for their rights, but then that means very little when you round the. Uh, uh, the Cape of Good Hope, and you enter the Indian Ocean. That that means absolutely nothing to a to a sultan or or, or to an emperor. Um, they are they are the people you need to become supplicant to and to and to acquire privileges and trading rights from. So, uh, and, if you're and, and drawing also, your authority, yeah. and also yeah. start to start to work in their uh, <laughs> culture of business, right? Pre- present yourself in a certain way, and this is where some of these. Uh, you know the, the guys will become known as nabobs get themselves in trouble right like you need you need a budget for a tiger right yes yeah <laughs> yeah I, I, and the thing is you you've got to when you learn those uh, foreign business practices it's like any good business today to understand them in many ways you have to sort of adopt those kind of local cultural and, and social uh practices and and and, and beliefs and you know in, in the early modern period when identities and and and, uh, and and nation states were still emerging and it's far more sort of um uh you know sort of um uh, uh porous than than perhaps they are today, that you were able to slip more easily between these different kind of linguistic and and, and cultural borders um, that were drawn up later in the in the sort of 18th and 19th century. So you have this kind of cadre, this 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 group of British officials that aren't quite the Victorian, you know, fifth helmet that they will become, but more willing to shed their national and imperialistic skins and, you know, and, and immerse themselves in Asian, South Asian cultures and societies as a way to acquire the capital, the knowledge and the and the contacts to thrive. And so um, and so it's looking at that, if we, if we take the origins of the British Empire away from Europe and place them within Asia, within mm-hmm. some of these powerful and resilient states and societies, what are we saying then about the origins of empire more broadly and 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 about the 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 power balance between Europeans and Asians, and so I, I was lucky enough to follow that thread, um, working on a big one million pound project funded by the Leverhulme Trust, which is a big funding body here in the UK, uh, under my uh, one of my supervisors, uh, William Pettigrew, um, who uh, is is chair in history at Lancaster University now, and um, and he had a unique opportunity to look at the way that the English Constitution in the 17th century was formed partly through the experiences of these overseas trading companies um uh, and which they you know when they, they kind of fed back what they 
discovered elsewhere in places like Asia and the Mediterranean and, and in West Africa and how that led to uh, conversations about, um, you know, the role of religious toleration, the role of uh, a political economy, um, thinking about, um, um, you know, everything from the right to tax. And and so um, I got to sort of go off and look at the East India Company. And that was my first book with Cambridge University Press. Um, and so that, that, uh, the 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 great defiance is very much a kind of natural continuation of looking at the power of the non-european states and societies that the british encounter um but writ large on a global context and i wondered whether i, I was a, a slightly anxious to do the book because i it was one of those situations where i had the idea in my mind let's take this kind of case study that i've looked at with east india company in asia about how um it met these powerful polities and societies and it had to sort of adapt to them in that situation um and did that exist elsewhere uh, did the british steamroll over people and you know my cursory knowledge before i set out this project of um the uh, atlantic context especially north america and the caribbean and places like that was generally that the narratives that i understood and had read that the, the colonists came in and did steamroll they displaced people they committed genocide and the indigenous uh, people were more or less just sort of vanished from the historical record sort of, sort of wilted well, well away right just sort of wilted away wilted yeah. away um and so I was a bit of, and there was a couple of points, you know, early on in the research of the project, where I discovered that, that yes, no, no, it's not okay. Sometimes this process takes a whole century. Sometimes it's a intergenerational struggle between settlers and colonists on the one hand, and then the indigenous polities that they encounter. Um, and even in success and eventual victory in colonizing these places, often the the product end result was a was a massive compromise. It wasn't always what the British intended to do. Um, and then the sort of maps that you see at the end of this period you know the imperial pink splashed here and there and it, it often tells us much about where the british were less successful than than where they were um and so um the, the book is very much that that sort of history of the british empire as, as being a slightly more uneven and challenging process largely not because of the british themselves but because of the the, the sheer kind of uh, power and resilience of the people they met Right, right, and so um, the the book the book itself is, and you you just touched on this, is a bit of a historiographic defiance, right? So you're you're writing against um, generations of received wisdom, and uh, official histories of the British Empire. So what did you want the, this book to do as an intervention? I think you just touched on it in that last sentence. Yeah, I think that there had been uh, various developments in certainly the historiography of the British Empire um, that um, that had tended to certainly in the past. 20 years um look more at the contribution this is kind of in a post-imperial life of, of of the british nation today than seeing well what kind of legacy did britain have on the rest of the world now that empire's more or less finished and we're a post-imperial people and you get a lot of work come out you know Niall ferguson's a really good example of uh, empire you know how britain made the modern world look at how okay what kind of legacy did britain have and you you tend to get a, a kind of real flurry of these sorts of works that tended to define certain the public or the non-specialist perception of the um you know britain did some good things some bad things but generally we birthed the modern world you know based on industry and science and western ideas and democracy and so that was a kind of neat and tidy narrative um but you know in some ways that was just the kind of the product of a longer historiography from the 20th century onwards in which um the sort of 
native and indigenous people were you know not at the center of the history of their own environments and societies and it and rather a lot of these places it was the history of what the british were doing there and to those people and so you get some of these indigenous polities and cultures as acting as these hazy backdrops to english success and victory you know most of our narratives of the british Empire is you know based on what we know it eventually becomes in the 19th and 20th centuries as hegemonic and dominant and successful and so the narratives we have were predominantly even you know in academic research just inevitable passive victims of british success and colonialism um and um you know you see a very long heritage of that going all back to the contemporary sources produced by colonists and settlers where they downplay indigenous success and and sophistication as a way to justify their own colonization rooting in those old kind of imperial ideologies and i can say very clear sort of threads through them to the kind of victorian hagiographies of you know the british conquerors all the way through to the post-war um um, histories that were produced about the great empire and finally in the late 20th century turn of the turn of the uh, century works like Nile Ferguson that was a celebration of empire and its sheer impact on the world and so yes I wanted to to challenge that and and to see um uh, the you know if if the British were um uh, um all conquering and whether that it was a case of displacing existing cultures and and, and overawing them with european superiority and and so the historiographical defiance as, as you mentioned it which i've had is hopefully to show that uh, actually often the english uh, uh, arrived in a very kind of weaker position and it was only through long long struggle often defeat and and having to abandon these places and colonies um were uh, eventually over 300 years you know three centuries almost finally did the british emerge uh, as dominant in some of these places and that's a i think a, a it's a far different history to to one that that we often get for the british empire but it also i think it's um it it's suddenly recenters who's important in this story and it's not just the british people that went out all the ambitions or agendas that they had from places like london um all of that meant very little once people got there and encountered these powerful societies and cultures yeah. and and often tried to learn from them and appropriate what they had yeah and in your, your book forces us to rethink notions of power. And we have these teleologies of, you know, we know what's going to happen after say 1820, right? We, we know Manchester's coming. We know, we know what the, the um, fossil fuels are going to be able to unleash. And we, we know what 1900 looks like. So it's very difficult to get back into uh, 1690, for example. Um, and uh, this is actually a theme that I, I teach a lot in my uh, world history seminars is that, um, that the uh, you know the European empires weren't started out of uh, power and confidence, but really out of desperation. You know, getting into boats at this time is scary. There's a good chance you're not going to come back, and the, the big empires don't have to do that. China decided, meh, <laughs> it was it was too much trouble, right? And the, and even the Mughal Empire are are ambivalent towards the seas. Um, I, I I when the, the 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 ways I teach this with my students is I talk about the difference between the um the hot dog vendor and the fanciest restaurant in town. Um, the hot dog vendor has a cart and he goes around and 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 finds a parking lot or goes to a sporting event and tries to tries to sell you a hot dog, right? 
and the fanciest restaurant in town, you need to make a reservation, oftentimes days or weeks or maybe months ahead of time, and you better dress nice to go in there. If you don't have the proper clothes, they may, may make you wear, you know, make that old stereotype of the restaurant where they make you wear a jacket to go in. Well, that, that's the Chinese economy. That's the that's the Mughal economy. That's the Indian economy. And the hot dog vendors uh, are coming out of this, uh, this you know, this isolated peninsula on the on the greater Eurasian landmass, and and doing the dangerous thing, and and showing up with, as you point out in the book, some pretty, pretty modest offerings. Like we have, we, we've got some wool, <laughs> which which I'm sure you'll you'll love here on the equatorial. Uh... <laughs> I think that uh, that's a that's a I mean it's a really annoying analogy because I haven't had dinner yet and just the way you're talking <laughs> I can just hear my stomach rumbling but also that's a fantastic analogy because I think that's exactly right and I think what we often forget because you know that theological perspective that you know the idea that this is inevitable and therefore the, the English must have started off in this important position you know it's like John Darwin you know said this kind of equilibrium but I, I would argue otherwise it's you know it's not the equilibrium for a very long time and for the first few centuries certainly we have to think of England as, you know, coming out of at the end of the 16th century, you know, especially in the supposed golden age of, of Elizabeth, there's food shortages, there's inflation. In the early 17th century, England's greatest export cloth is depressed and slumped. It's lost traditional markets in Europe. Um, and, um, you know, the, the English crown especially is always on the verge of bankruptcy. Neither James nor Charles I can manage their purses. Um, you know, there's religious division and conflict that would eventually culminate in civil war um in the mid 70s this is a politically unstable religiously divided economically depressed place and yeah. it's always raining and so <laughs> i think that a lot of people are uh are kind of like you said you know they they're, they're going out not from a position of strength and, and dominance but rather in this kind of meek position of needing to find or to solve their domestic problems through um through the kind of wealth of the rest of the world the rest of the world is doing pretty good and i think england clocks what its neighbors are doing in on in the iberian peninsula spain and portugal in south america um and uh and in east asia and uh, and now the dutch by the end of the 16th century uh poking around um the routes to asia um and uh and in the caribbean South America, and um and and seeing a kind of um uh, an opportunity to um, to to solve a lot of the economic and political problems, everything from you know dumping England's poor and criminal into North America. Um, Absolutely, and, I mean that's um, that's such an example of desperation. I mean the 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 only way that colonial project was possible is you've got these desperate people that um, are are go, going to the new world under one form of coercion or another, be it be it in chains or economic desperation or or religious desperation. Um, and, and and those are my people. <laughs> those are my yeah, ancestors. Exactly. <laughs> and it's and it's funny, but when we see so they come arrive in these places, you know, North America is a great example in that condition, and and from that position of weakness, and and that's replicated in those early years. If you take somewhere like Jamestown in Virginia, where they they're starving to death, you know, the colony is you know is just absolutely abysmal for many many years, and far from far from 
you know arriving and displacing and taking over they are reliant on the you know the indigenous powhatan tribes for their food um you know they have to teach the you know the the english uh, you know the indian way of planting crops and how to keep warm in winter and you know after five or six years some you know a new wave of english arrive and they're just absolutely aghast at just how miserable the english have gotten on and so uh, for a lot of these colonial encounters uh, certainly in the outset it's, it's not even an equilibrium I mean, that eventually comes but you know it, the, the english are in absolute reposition even where they're not seeking to colonize so for example in southeast asia uh, on the indonesian archipelago uh, the islands of sumatra and um, and java today the you know you mentioned that the sort of things that they've got for sale um you know uh woolen woolen goods um when people are draped in you know uh chinese silk or colorful indian sumptuous textiles um you know, they're just absolutely laughing there's one instance where uh, uh indigenous javanese people break into the east india company's factory at banton and they don't steal anything and they're like what the hell is this you know, and <laughs> half of it is spoiled in the tropical sun and they leave empty-handed and i just that that really encapsulates this first you know the first phase of english colonialism where yeah. it's just a really bad showing for the it's embarrassing yeah you know, as an english i'm sort of reading really through these records going oh come on guys this is just absolutely embarrassing it's just yeah so it's well, um, well, it's well, not it goes back to the portuguese too i mean look at the look at the reception vasco da gama got when he got to india you know seeking christian and spices and and offering you know some some trinkets there um but that 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 um vignette of the thieves breaking into the uh the warehouse in banton i, I i'm stealing and not stealing anything because it's all garbage i'm stealing that for my lectures just so you know um, <laughs> <You're> <laughs> I'm, gonna, to I'm gonna drop that one so let's get into the uh, the organization of the book um uh it's what is it about about 14 chapters divided into three sections and uh it's resistance hegemony and survival and um i think you're you're having a little fun with those with those um uh heading names because it's not the resistance that that uh people are expecting not the hegemony people are expecting not the survival that people are expecting when they normally pick up a book on the british empire so would you explain this organization and, and what you wanted to get at with that um uh that triumvirate of resistance hegemony and survival yeah it's interesting when i first wrote the book um because it is so kind of chronologically and geographically sort of wide-ranging and i the way i thought i'd tie these very different sort of mini kind of flashpoints of resistance and, and and encounter together is through uh the various people moving between these different regions and there were lots of people doing that in the early modern period you know we might have uh, english colonists involved in the conquest of ireland that then move into the north atlantic and fund uh, the various colonies in north america then you see them investing their profits in the east india company and going out to it and i thought that was okay but then i realized as i'd sort of written it that you know this this is a reinforcing a, a, an english uh, narrative of, of the empire um and so um uh and when i sent it off to my editor and she sort of agreed that there was uh, a need to uh, as the actual writing itself creates this kind of slightly uh, uh um subverted narrative that the kind of structure of the book should reflect that and so what i what, I, what so the, the way the book is now it's very different structure to how it was in my first draft and so i thought about that quite a lot and so i very consciously like you said wanted to structure it in a way that perhaps would be unexpected for people so um i look at the first section of the book on uh titled resistance is is very much looking at where um where the english were um violently 
uh, uh, challenge uh, in their the presence that they established in various places um, from Ireland, which is um, often folded into English domestic history because Henry VIII makes it a kingdom. Um, and uh, we often think of it as a domestic history for the you know the next four hundred years or so. But actually, England is, is uh, Ireland is England's first colony, um, and it remains a colony, you know, de facto colony, very much so. And um, and so that conquest, you know, began in the thirteenth century, twelfth century, and only culminates at the beginning of the seventeenth century. And so, uh, 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 yeah, and it's the conflict that in the seventeenth century almost breaks England. It's the despite the you know we we hear about the Spanish armadas and English intervention in the Netherlands against the Catholics, um, but actually the war, the conquest of Ireland eclipses all of those uh, conflicts combined, and um, it's. It, it almost breaks the English state, um, costs 100,000 English lives. And so it's a big, long, bloody conquest. And then that's followed by uh, the other theatres in which the English presence was was violently resistant. Um, so the resistance we're talking about is the indigenous and non-European re- resistance the English met. And uh, we followed that over to North America, where repeated attempts to establish colonies has met with overwhelming force. The, in the case of in the Carolinas in Ossimacomac, or, or today's um, you know, Roanoke uh, region uh, in North Carolina, the Carolina Sounds is leads to the abandonment of, of colonial ventures because indigenous resistance is just too... Uh, too much for the small resources the English can muster. Um, followed by attempts to colonise New England, uh, the turn of the 17th century, all failures. And it's uh, and then it looks at the conflict with the Powhatan um, uh, Confederacy um, with the establishment of Jamestown, sort of 20 years after the initial uh, Roanoke venture led by um, uh, Sir Walter Raleigh. Um, and, and really it takes the English almost half a century to dismantle Powhatan dominance of the Virginia Tidewater region. Um, and even then, there's some kind of survival of the Powhatan people. They're very much changed form, but their resistance, uh, while ultimately defeated, nonetheless was uh, so significant, and I think so um, uh, it, kind of so resilient that ultimately the English have to compromise. Um, and so um, I, I think that that's a really good example of how. You know, and, and some voices on the book would be like, yeah, but the English, the British are victorious eventually. All these people are defeated. Yeah, but it depends how you define defeat or, or success. Um, success for the English, you know, where the multiple colonies have been abandoned, uh, entire fortunes have been lost, lives lost, and it's taken over half a century to colonise, um, is not necessarily the big success that they initially envisaged. Um, and then it ends with the Caribbean. The Caribbean is a really good example of, it's one of my favourite parts of the book because or almost completely in the historiography and in i think the uh, kind of public wider awareness of 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 europe in the caribbean is that it's a a, a site of european rivalry for control of sugar plantations and the trade in enslaved people um and very rarely if ever certainly in the lesser antilles in the eastern caribbean very rarely if ever, are the indigenous kalanago people a part of that narrative and and so um uh, again not having been a specialist on Caribbean history, uh, you know, when I got into the research for this, I was just absolutely amazed at the role that they play. And this is not a theatre of European rivalry. It's a theatre of Kalinago, indigenous Kalinago dominance for well over a century. It really is almost two centuries until finally the Kalinago are defeated and, and, and the survivors 
um, banished from from the Caribbean and, and deported to um, South America, Central America. Um, yeah, so I, I found that's... that section. I found that section to be a really, really important correction to sort of standard narratives. And again, focus on European rivalries. Focus on, uh, for op- for obvious reasons, the origins of uh, of the trade in enslaved human beings. Um, uh, but but there's this other history there that's like at several points puts these colonial ventures in true existential crises. Are are they are they actually going to make it? Um, and so I, I thought that was. That was a great intervention. Yeah, I, 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 and they're actually, you know, the colonists are writing back to London, so help us. So we are almost completely overthrown. And there's a, a really great um, uh, a quote um, from, um, I think, the settlers on the island of Antigua, which uh, essentially that we are paying tribute to the Calanago. You know, we are the colonized. And I thought that was a brilliant subversion of our traditional ideas of uh, imperial power in this period when it's the indigenous people who are terrorizing the settlers um and a, a really good kind of um uh, switch to that narrative so so and then that that culminates the end of, of resistance that this is a long bloody century of uh, mostly in the atlantic context of ireland and north america and the caribbean but it just showed what a prominent role resistance plays and you know we have this myth that indigenous people wiped out through european disease or overwhelmed by superior european technology and knowledge but uh, but hopefully that that shows us that no resistance was uh, not just something they encountered but something that they had to that the empire has to live with and accommodate and and, and essentially give way to in some spaces so i thought that would be a nice corrective. The second part, um, this idea of hegemony, um, was uh, but by this point we're sort of um, towards the end of the seventeenth century, early eighteenth century, when the British Empire, you know, um, uh, supposedly really takes off. And actually, it's not that it's not the dominance of of the British that Section Two looks at. It's actually the kind of hegemonic status of the the non European world, particularly in the Mediterranean with the Ottoman Empire and the North African. Um, uh, Corsair states and um, particularly um, in East Asia with Tokugawa Japan um, and China and then with um, the Mughal Empire in, in on the Indian subcontinent. These are actually the world's superpowers, not not the European empires that, that have emerged, arguably. And I, so I, I think I wanted to subvert that expectation of uh, those linear narratives of the British Empire, which goes from strength to strength to strength. Here we are, a hundred years in, and we're still looking actually at the dominance of other cultures and polities, and it's the, the English is still not there yet. So um, that 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 really looks at how the English rock up with you know fantasies of monopolising the trade of the Indian Ocean, um, with telling North African corsair states um, how they how they should behave in international waters, mm-hmm. um, forcing them to uh, to abide by English expectations of trade um, and cooperation, uh, and even in East Asia, hoping that uh, that could be turned into a sort of a silver mine for the English to fund their trade elsewhere. And um, what you get is, again, another century across the 17th century of um, of um, of trying to learn uh, and adapt to a system of trade, especially in the Indian nation that is thousands of years old, that is really the centre of the world, uh, the early modern world economy. And um, and the English are at the bottom of the hierarchy. They're at the bottom of the ladder. They're at the margins of this system. Um, and it's a frustrating process for them. But for the indigenous uh, uh, and non-European cultures and, and polities that inhabit 
the Indian nation, for example, the English are so, are so marginal and they're treated like that. And I think that the English shock is met with a kind of attempt that, OK, let's use our superior maritime power here. or And it just doesn't work. And, and, and they're often pitted, especially the Mughal Empire pits the various Europeans against one another in a kind of display where you have to earn our admiration. You have to earn our respect that you are a serious maritime trading partner. Only then will we allow you to trade in the richness of the riches of um, of the Indian subcontinent. Because, so because the, the Europeans, um, the Europeans aren't able to import much into the Indian Ocean world. But one thing they they do import are their silly European rivalries, right? So Catholic versus Protestant, and then later the various Protestant states, Dutch and, and English, fight amongst each other. And and the, yeah, the the Mughals are very skillful. Uh, at, at at pitting those uh, those groups against each other, I thought that was a really really wonderful insight to this uh, this history. Yeah, well, what are we? I, I think we always see that you know that especially in, in the Asian context that the Indian uh, um, rulers and diplomats and elites are reacting to the arrival of Europeans. Actually, they're often taking the initiative and they're the ones setting the kind of terms of engagement. And the English and the French and the Dutch and the Portuguese are having to sort of then rush to accommodate and try and understand that. And but you know, is a there's a um a, a great um, part where the English arrive in uh, uh the Dutch and the Portuguese arrive in Japan and the 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 Jesuits are desperate for the. Tokugawa uh, uh, shoguns not to realize that Europe is riven by schism, that there are the, the Catholics and the Protestants fighting, and that actually Spain doesn't control all of Europe. It's split into lots of different kingdoms, and 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 the Dutch are only too happy to to let the shogun know all the trouble that's that, that's going on in Europe, and actually that the Spanish are not in control of everyone, and the Catholic Church is not dominant. And it's just these great ways where then they can use that and, and exploit it for their advantage. So, um, but. You know, and then so by the end of this period, having learned over a hundred years gradually how business is done, and acknowledging finally, sometimes after some quite nasty conflicts that the English lose, uh, acknowledging their place, and then working from that kind of position of weakness to be suppliant, um, to make sure that they uh, play by the rules, to rely less on military force and more on gift giving and treaties, and eventually. But in this period, they do successfully establish themselves in places like the Levant in the Eastern Mediterranean and uh, in uh, in the Indian Ocean. But that's a big trial and error process and trial error where they are very much, yeah, the new kid on the block and have to learn. Um, and, the, and then the, for the, the final the, section... Well, in the, yeah, the, some of the aspects of hegemony they face are, are kind of surprising, the, uh, particularly in the Mediterranean, where they're... The, you know they're they're trying to break into this Ottoman system, but so the biggest resistance are these, uh, basically the Islamic equivalent uh, of privateers, right? The this whole series of North African pirates. Could you could you speak to that and what the what kind of problems that fo- that posed to the English? Because that's that's a when we think about empires and hegemony, um, I think when we get uh, particularly into the Ottoman Empire and the Mughals and so forth, we we might forget that things like privateering which the europeans are using is really really quite active and quite strong yeah i think that i mean that that speaks for a particular way that england had to uh, pursue its its imperial ambitions as the english state itself is is very weak uh, I, I kind of outlined some of the problems it's really not until 
the end of the 17th century, early 18th century, where it's got kind of fiscal military muscle to finally project itself. And therefore, uh, the English state relies really on outsourcing its empire and its imperial um, um, uh, agenda. And the most common way to do that is by creating trading companies of private investors that are then provided with some kind of autonomy to pursue their trade and on behalf of, of the crown. The other way is, is, is privateering. We know it's a massive thing in the Elizabethan period. It doesn't just disappear. When James I comes to the throne, uh, also James uh, uh, the, the sixth, obviously, of, of Scotland, he's aghast that he thinks everyone in England is a pirate and he blames his predecessor, Elizabeth, for having licensed these privateers as a way to obviously challenge Spanish um, Spanish power in the Atlantic and Caribbean. Um, and, but that's... that's it's a winning strategy. Privateering is a lucrative business and it does help to undermine the Iberian presence uh, across the world in England, uh, but also in the, in, in the favour of the Dutch as well. And so privateering, it, we associate that closely with European empire building, especially by the Protestant uh, North Europeans when they arrive on the scene. Um, but it, it's not the preserve of Europeans. And I think that the Ottoman and North African context was really interesting because it also challenges European ideas about sovereignty and, and the state and um, that the English could happily engage in privateering but see something like corsairing which is essentially the uh, the the Muslim equivalent of of privateering, licensed by the Sultan and uh, or, or the various bays or chiefs of uh, of the North African um, uh, port states like Tripoli and Algiers um, and Tunis. And that gives you the legal authority to prey on on shipping, um, and with not being able to recognise himself as a pirate king, uh, even though James the First's you know, colonial and imperial uh, pursuits are largely delivered through English privateering, he refuses to do business with the the corsair states of North Africa. He sees these as dens of piracy, and I will not stoop. To, to to do business also you know they they are not sovereign states and i am a sovereign king so he forbids um to treat with them as equals but uh the north african uh corsair states although they derive a lot of their kind of resources and and, and even their political legitimacy and authority through corsairing or, or privateering um they by the mid 17th century they uh they are certainly stateless if not autonomous political entities on the the western frontier of the ottoman empire and the english as they're unable to project their maritime power um they uh, and for example they launch an expedition the first english expedition into the mediterranean at the head of a fleet of royal navy ships which uh, cannot bombard algiers and is actually sent running from algiers um and uh, i think they managed to set on fire five or, or ten privateers and then that very same day, sort of 20 or 30 new prizes are towed in. And so the whole thing is completely useless. It realises that if it if it can't use force, then it has to use diplomacy. And and by the end of this period, James I is dealing with the North African Corsair states as equal sovereign states. And, and so it's a great way to show that how whatever England wanted to do, it, they rarely actually achieved. And it had to accommodate the realities, the kind of the the realities of power on the ground, but also the kind of geopolitical realities, certainly of the Mediterranean. Um, and through a series of diplomatic um, uh, missions, um, the North African bays or chiefs succeed in, in normalising diplomatic relations with England, even though James was so aghast and so against it. The rest of Europe are quite scandalised. Um, 
Uh, but by the end of the 17th century, all European states have normal diplomatic relations with uh, with the Bays. And um, and so, so I thought that was a, a great way to show that it's not always just about military force, but, you know, the defiance that the English encounter from the rest of the world is often just a defiance of their expectations for, for kind of political and sovereign superiority. It's the English cannot regulate the Mediterranean. Other people do that. And the English have to find a way to accommodate that. I really like that turn of phrase, the de- defiance of expectations. Um, I think I think that that's that's a brilliant insight there, and and um, and also the, again, just to finish up with this hegemony. So, you know, they have they have to deal with the uh, the Ottoman Empire. They have to deal with the the economic power of the Mughal Empire. The Mughal Empire isn't really challenging them on the seas. That's sort of the, the for the emperor, the Mughal Emperor. That's sort of on the periphery, and that's not a major area of concern. But they have to figure out how to how to work economically and also, as you alluded to, get into sort of the business culture um, and present yourself in a certain way. And then um, Japan's just really, really a non-starter. And the, the Japanese can eventually tell them to go away, that they're they're too much trouble. And the, the same with China. And I, I thought about comparisons of the um, of the English sort of floundering about trying to create a some sort of viable economic system in Asia and this age. And th- I thought about, you know, what I know about the the Portuguese empire in this era where, you know, everybody talks about the profits to be made from taking spices uh, to Lisbon, but actually the Portuguese in the Estado de India made their real money becoming Asian traders, <laughs> servicing the Chinese economy, going to Timor, getting the sandalwood and selling it to, uh, to China. And it's they, they, the Portuguese fleet becomes, becomes yet, yet another Asian fleet, right? Yeah, I think, and that's eventually down the line by the 18th century. That's where British success lies in trading yeah. between Asian uh, ports and 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 regions. Um, and again, that's that's not the expectation. The expectation <laughs> is that they would that, that in in Asia they're find a market for their own goods and then take the riches of Asia and sell them in Europe and yeah. become rich. And it, 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 it's, long... not, it's not just that it's that's not the expectation. But I think what's important for our conversation and our profession is that oftentimes that's not the story that we t- we should be telling. That we we tell the story of like going to the spice islands and bringing the spices back, and that made Portugal so powerful. Um, that, that's part of it, but they also began servicing the Chinese economy, servicing Asia, and so I think I think that the, your your discussion here and the hegemony is such a great intervention for how we teach this, how we talk about uh, this this history. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's not, this isn't European colonial history necessarily. Now it's uh, Asian history. And so we have to fall around Asia. World history. history. How the world is. Or world history or global history. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And so it's that kind of, um, yeah, having to move away from those national lenses through which we understand these Europeans overseas. Actually, no, rather it's the moment they get overseas, it becomes a global history of accommodation, you know, you know, exchange and, uh, and then having to sort of adapt to the uh, the kind of the foreign people that you're meeting and the business cultures there. But um, but but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, and I always think that the example of Japan is is great. But a, it's not often known about that the English are in Japan because there's no, uh, you know, there's no um, there's there's no real history there. It's a sort of 10, 15 year attempt by the English to crack Japan as they think the Dutch and the Portuguese have. But um, but it's 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 a great sign when you look at the maps at the end of the 18th century where the book ends and you know you see wow that's impressive look there in north america and there's just there's nothing in the whole of east asia it's just like 
you know untouched supposedly but actually you know that's a that's a that's evidence that demonstrates that the emergence of the british empire is an uneven and often failed enterprise as much as it succeeds and taking over japan is a great example not through the lack of english effort um it almost ruins them it does that you know they have to withdraw because you know it's completely sapped the east india company has to completely transform its strategy and, and reorientate towards india and the textile trade that's more or less the end of english ambitions for spices and silver and in fact it's england that becomes the importer of silver into asia rather mm-hmm. than hoping to mm-hmm. exploit a- uh, asia's minerals and um essentially funds the the commercialization and the uh and the uh, fiscalization of the mughal empire for example um so but but yeah so they're, they're i think these are lessons that we don't we don't often teach or tell because they're not successes we often teach the successes but the right. failures i think can often tell us so much more yeah and that's 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 a great insight and then so um survival the last section and uh, again, I think you're being a little tricky with the with the title here because it may not be the survival that the reader is expecting. So, what, what what's survival about? Yeah, uh, so it kind of has two it's, it's sort of two levels to it. Ultimately, it's that we're now approaching the end of the 18th century, or well, certainly firmly in the 18th century. This is the period in traditional colonial historiography where the British Empire is now taking off. The East India Company is gobbling up territory the size of western europe in india um you know it's um okay it's 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 losing the 13 colonies uh in north america it's gaining canada and um it's gaining toeholds in in western south africa and its presence in the mediterranean and so we see the this period traditionally in the 18th century is the period where and a lot of history books begin in the 18th century um i've taught courses that begin in the 18th century when looking at british colonialism or european empire often more broadly i mean i'll I'll, 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 I'll confess i'll confess that in my lecture it's it's uh uh what 1757 battle of plassey okay yes go right (laughs) yes exactly this is the beginning but actually this is really the end of one history i think of the british empire in many instances and and it's a you know so it's a it's a quarter of a millennium of of britain of english people you know filtering out into the world um and having some success and a lot of failure and still not necessarily being uh, the dominant imperial enterprise it would eventually become in the 19th and 20th centuries so i want to take this bit where we start with uh, uh english or british hegemony and actually show that um, this is a period in which a, a lot of non-European indigenous powers are still thriving and, and, and surviving as dominant powers, even though by the late 18th century, Britain's commercial and military influence is being felt in a way it hadn't. In 1707, with the Acts of Union, uh, uh, England and Scotland become Great Britain, and the British state is a far more uh, uh, effective and powerful entity than the than its English predecessor. Um, you know, a lot of the religious and political divisions and instabilities are, are, are generally generally. I'm being very very uh, general here, but uh, are generally behind it. It's capable of raising the kind of revenue and. In- uh, and deploying overseas the kind of military force that it could have only had dreamt of 50 years ago. And so we are de- dealing with a more dangerous and ambitious colonial British state. Having said that, though, there are lots of instances where at the end of the early modern period, the, the twilight of the early modern period, the there are in some cases entirely new non-European polities emerging with imperial and, 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 and uh, you know, uh, uh, 
very ambitious agendas of their own in areas of the world like West Africa or India, which we traditionally associate with the British Empire, uh, whether it's the trade in enslaved people to feed its colonies and plantations, which under underpin British riches, or whether it's seen in subcontinent, you know, Plassey, Robert Clive, uh, you know, all the spectacular glory to come over the next century. And so I chose two kind of two survivors of the early modern world, those that did not succumb uh, and, and far from just not succumbing, in, in some ways shaped the emerging British Empire in those sort of areas. And um, other than the Caribbean, that's my favourite uh, uh, chapters to research, certainly, and to write was the, the Kingdom of Dahomey um, in West Africa, which is kind of a quite well-known, um, uh, um, I think last year, had a, or the beginning of this year, had a Hollywood, Hollywood um, a film about Dahomey. Um, I think... Um, the woman uh i can't remember the woman king that's right that's it um um and and it's quite well known in the historiography uh in terms of the, the debate of abolition and, and what that meant in places like dahomey but it has this kind of earlier history where it emerges in uh, a place that is really the kind of the center of britain and and, and the netherlands uh trading slave people which is one of the key pillars of the british empire certainly the atlantic context feeding into the triangular trade and uh, and the kind of colonial commodities that really sets britain apart in terms of its financial power from other places in europe and uh, and then you get the emergence of a powerful kingdom a military kingdom um one that's built on conquest of the coastal states and the and the slave ports of Ouida and Alada. Um, and it's a it's a polity of centralization, it's a sense of centralized royal power over the economy, society, and its political structure, uh, and to assert itself over its neighbors and to create sort of tributary relationships. And so Britain you know, in a period where we traditionally see it as emerging as dominant, uh, there are these powers that are that are emerging too with their own aspirations and and the way in which Britain has to learn, it, even in the you know in the in the height of its power in the late eighteenth century, um, it it has to learn to accommodate these non-European powers, even in the twilight of the early modern period, which is not a narrative we hear obviously traditionally, even by this, this, this time, you know, this is the, after the victory of the seven year war, the first world war where Britain's, you know, slapped down France and Spain and gobbled up territory everywhere, you know, soon they're faced down Napoleon and, and yet they're struggling with uh, uh, the homing. A king of the West Africa, um, and but that was one thing I wanted to do with Dahomey. This idea of survival, survive British expansion in West Africa, and in fact, it kind of set the parameters of how the British could operate there and operate in the terms of the trade and enslaved people. It's not a triumphant story. These are uh, Dahomey is the, uh, the 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 king of Dahomey. Gaja wants to. Um, wants to enrich his kingdom through the trade and enslaved people. This isn't the Hollywood story where they wanted to abolish it. There's no evidence that that happened, although there are attempts to make the homey less dependent on a uh, uh, selling enslaved people. Um, and so on the one level, it's about showing how Britain could be challenged at the height of its power. On the other one, it's also looking at this very tricky, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about this in a bit, about the kind of current, contemporary landscape when it comes to discussing colonialism but the kind of very uh controversial subject of britain's role in the trade and enslaved people uh as often rendering west africa in as just a very passive supplier of enslaved people and you've got this very sophisticated 
politically sophisticated rich culture of Dahomey um, and that they can operate from a position of power. They're not just victims of European colonialism. Yes, they are. And the trade in slave people in the Atlantic is often uh, 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 is obviously horrific uh, on its scale. It's, it's industrial scale and it's suffering. But still, Dahomey is a great example of how the British could be forced to give way to West African people, mostly elites, of course. But West uh, Dahomey is a great example of of the way West African power survives into the 19th century. Right. And, and not just um, uh, resisting or uh, defying in terms of um, uh, military and political power, but also economic power. And they you see the the exercise of agency of the um, the elite of Dahomey as consumers. And they that 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 complicates things for the British, right? Because they <laughs> once again, um, British find that people don't want their crappy woolen stuff. So they actually, they actually want the really nice cotton from India. So it it it, it forces uh, the British to become uh, again uh, merchants in the Asian economy, bringing um, Indian Ocean goods to West Africa to purchase human beings, right? Yeah, they, yeah, they have they have to play a role in supplying Dahomean elites and the Dahomean crown. And if they can't fulfil that role, well, then there's no place for them in West Africa. Um, if they can't supply the royal hats that King Agaja loves, the the French hats or brandy, or the guns and gunpowder, or um, you know, most importantly, um, are um, you know, cowrie shells from Mauritius and the Indian nation, which is used as currency not just by West Africans but by Europeans in West Africa. Most importantly, is silk in the 18th century the big uh, uh, transformation in consumer taste in West Africa is silk, as it is in Europe as well in the 18th century. Uh, and anyone worth their salt is draped in silk and is dealing in silk. And so the British, and, and it says an interesting thing about, you know, who is setting, you know, British political economy in, in, in the global context. It's, it's the people they meet force them to transform their uh, trade routes and uh, their uh, markets they exchange between and and the role they play as suppliers and uh, and I think that the home is a great example of emerging suddenly and transforming British patterns of trade uh, between Asia and West Africa in a way that the British did not intend or look out for but ultimately benefited them, but perhaps benefited the home even more than that. Um, and so we can't look at this as a Brit. You know, the British Empire is expanding along British lines, but being transformed and reconfigured and often twisted to meet the demands of powerful people like the Dahomeans. Yeah, yeah. And also in this this last section on survival, you talk about, um, well, the, the Mughal Empire is going into a, a period of decline at this point, but there is a, another South Asian uh, empire that, that that gets kind of marginalized in in conventional narratives. Could you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. That marginalizes. Uh, yeah, perhaps an understatement. We often go from okay, so this is the yeah, this is the period where we mostly start with the British Empire, and it often begins with the implosion of the Mughal Empire that's dominated the Indian subcontinent for two hundred um, and fifty years. And so our kind of linear narratives we have go, you know, implosion of the Mughals and the rise of the British, whether they're complicit in that implosion or they benefit from it, is a debate for historians over the decades and decades. Um, but that's our narrative and the British Raj appears and is dominant in the Victorian period and, and beyond. But we, we kind of miss out. We miss out a quite a substantial, uh, um, I think, um, detail, which is that the emergence of the Marathas and the Maratha Empire um, uh, uh, 
an empire of, of, of Hindu warriors from central India who are both parts of both stories of the decline of the Mughal Empire. Um, as In fact, as as really I would argue, and I think um, many other historians would argue, that facilitated that decline was the cause um, and the main beneficiary of Mughal decline, that they essentially helped military military context they helped to defeat the Mughal Empire but then to almost reanimate it as this lifeless corpse which they can use to further their own imperial agenda in usurping and replacing uh keeping the figure of the emperor to legitimize themselves moving into these old imperial territories taking over tax collecting and uh, reaping the rewards and so you've got this kind of poor reanimated Mughal corpse um and so that that you know the British are still marginal in that story of Mughal decline they're also the hopefully the book shows they were they were not the prime beneficiaries it was the Marathas in fact the conquest of Bengal by the East India Company um in the 1750s and 60s obviously while significant Bengal being the size of you know almost the size of Western Europe, 20 million people or so. Um, and it transforms the East India Company and arguably the British economy. Um, in terms of the story for India, it is a kind of quite peripheral affair. The, the kind of main theatre of conflict and of the economy and even demographically speaking, intellectually and culturally, is still the is still the Gangetic Plain in, in North India, places like Delhi, Agra. Um, this is the most fertile most productive part of the world economically and um uh, and it's still the kind of core imperial territory in terms of the hundreds of millions of people in india they look to uh agra and delhi and the figure of the emperor and whomever controls them to legitimize their political structures and the elites still look to and so no one's looking necessarily at calcutta or bengal that's predominantly a sideshow. Um, and when Britain attempts to kind of assert itself and, and kind of challenge the Marathas for control of this kind of limpless Mughal corpse, um, they, they fail. They, they, they fail on a number of occasions, sometimes in direct conflict with the Marathas, sometimes through their own, the kind of sheer weight of the own problems they've encountered in conquering Bengal. Suddenly you've got a company of merchants trying to run a country they they need to build an administration. They need to provide some kind of services for the people. The East India Company are not interested in that. All they're interested in is maximizing their profits and exploiting the riches of Bengal. And you know, there's a devastating famine, which, whilst not caused by the British, is exasperated by their financial demands on certainly on the peasantry. So at a time when they should be relieving taxation and providing grain, they are exporting grain and increasing taxation, which leads to the death of about a third of the people in Bengal. And uh, and so the, after this devastating uh, uh, event, the, the East India Company has to kind of confine itself to Bengal and focus on building its position in Bengal uh, and, and therefore leaves the rest of India to the Marathas for, for most of the 18th century. And so I, I wanted to show this kind of traditional, in, in fact, really perhaps one of the most important stories in the rise of the of the British Empire, the conquest of India, um, as for most of the 18th century, not being about the British, but rather being about the emergence of the of this Hindu Maratha Empire, which was really quite spectacular. Um, and some of the people involved and some of the the, the wars involved are, are really, I think, going to be hopefully completely new to a lot of people who who might know something about the topic, but perhaps don't know. 
um, as much as they they thought they did. So I thought that was quite nice. And then put, you put, do put eventually me in, get put me the in that show. box. Put me in that box because you, <laughs> you know, even as a specialist as a South Asianist, yeah. you kind of put me in that box before I wrote the book. I mean, the Marathas always figured in uh, in my scholarship and they've always been there. But I just, I just by re, by by removing the perspective from Calcutta and placing it in Pune or Agra and Delhi. It just shows the the importance of I think uh, who you centre, whose perspective you centre, and 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 what that means for the narrative you're you're spinning. I, I think that's um, a really really important contribution of the book. I also just want to point out um, that um, your storytelling is fantastic, and we're 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 starting to run up against our time limit. But you've got so many amazing stories, especially some of the figures in this section with the Maharat. Uh, like, the 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 I mean, if these were Europeans, there would be you know, it would be these would be spectacular stories we'd be telling, wouldn't they? If these were yeah. Europeans, some of these figures, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, some of them are just so cinematic with the um, with with the leader taking prisoner and then planning this really spectacular escape and then re- coming back for revenge and uh, uh, in disguise as as a wedding party. I mean, just the the, the book the book has. We've been talking very, very big picture about the book, but the book has fantastic storytelling and really meets some some great historical characters. Um, so how has the, the book's been out for a few months? It came out, we're, we're talking in October um, and the book came out in May. How, how has the reception been? Yeah, thank you. Uh, the book came out end of May. Um, the reception, yeah, it's been great. I mean, as as an academic, we used to, uh, you know, writing maybe for, uh, you know, our immediate peers and our students, and and that's been my experience. But you know, academia can be often be a closed world. This is the first, I guess, what you call public or trade history book I've written that that uh, you know has reached thousands rather than than hundreds. So for for me, it's been you know it's been absolute highlight of my academic career so far. I'm very young, you know, I've just turned 40 so there are hopefully decades ahead um but in terms of the reception yeah i i think that it's um a lot of the the, the comments you've made and the themes you've kind of picked out i think that it's resonated with people uh, a lot of people uh not really understanding ireland as a colony as a laboratory for english colonialism and uh, and and uh, yeah hopefully the book shows also atrocity in great quantity um uh, i've got a you know there's been great response about the pivot of kalinago and a real interest in uh in kalinago culture um and um, um and it's resonated with people working on south asia and and, and especially living in india so there's uh, uh penguins india imprint has 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 released it out there um because i think it's it's resonated so well so it's so it's it's, it's kind of really hopefully what it's the the global approach i've taken to it um hopefully it's been able to bring those things into conversation as well what the english doing in india at the same time that they're doing in the caribbean and and, and the north uh, uh uh north america that's not so different um the experiences may may vary but the essential kind of dynamics at play here uh will perhaps be similar so that i think that's that's gone down quite well so so hopefully it's it's merited it's a place in you know in colonial history and as being a kind of kind of wide-ranging and uh comments of particularly taken to the idea of resistance um in a contemporary landscape right now talking about the british empire as you know it's a very kind of polarized idea as it was great and it's wonderful and no it was uh it was terrible and i think that um you know one of the great things we've got now are 
this in this post-colonial world that we live in is that you know got fantastic indian historians writing on the british empire you know colleagues across the rsc in ireland you know have been writing about what i'm talking about in, in ireland for decades and decades and so i it's kind of bringing those into conversation more closely i hope there's also been obviously some ruffled feathers of for the book and you know i didn't write the book um to 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 please everyone I, I wrote the book to to raffle feathers mostly because i i was getting a little bit bored by the by the flurry of books that were being written by people that wanted almost like a balance sheet approach to empire yeah there's some bad things if famine bad but hey trains and and hopefully a narrative of <laughs> redeeming it oh no the famine terrible but hey look at cricket so i think you've balanced that out cricket, okay. english law <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and so, malaysian judges wearing wigs um all, all that yeah, good exactly stuff. <laughs> um and so i'm wanted to intervene in, in that debate and i wanted to um really start from from the conceptualization of empire as being based on coercion and exploitation uh empires for the very nature cannot be positive uh, uh forces because they're constructed with the intention to monopolize to dominate to control and coerce and and hopefully certainly the first part of the book on resistance shows that this is like an irredeemable concept that we are talking about um no one voluntary there's no consent in empire people do not join empires through consent they are forced uh through subjugation or or otherwise and so i wanted to to intervene that debate and and naturally uh also show which i hopefully have done you mentioned earlier but this kind of historiographical defiance is to show that there's a kind of a purposeful project over the past century to to erase the voices and the agency of the people I've hopefully foregrounded. It's not that the people in the Victorian period or in the 20th century didn't know about these things. They often did. But, you know, the whole world was a, you know, a static uh, canvas on which the British came in and painted their modern, uh, their modern world of industry and Western education and ideas and demand. And so um, that was the narrative that that we inherited uh and that we have inherited and so for, for me that was a purposeful ratio of indigenous and non-european people um and so what i what i hopefully did was to you know was to bring to center them and their histories um and so you know that's yeah that's caused some criticisms of the book um as as showing the english and british as as a kind of a kind of homogenous flat group who are all out there to you know subvert and to destroy um and yeah in a way that wasn't necessarily my point but i wanted to in refocusing on indigenous and non-european people i didn't give the british necessarily the same amount of consideration and time because there are millions of books that do that the, the british are center stage their ideas their you know ideas about political economy their colonial ambitions and agendas and you know i've written those sorts of articles and books this is a book that consciously came away from the perspective of the british to give more time and consideration to those people who have hardly ever been center of their own histories and stories so that's the kind of uh the other one of course is that um that that i i show no no redeeming feature in what the british did in certainly in the early modern period um and you know and in a way i studied the early modern period i think because it, it's a really fantastic way i think when you're a history a historian of the british empire in the 19th or 20th century you know you can look to the technological achievements of the british or the industrial 
revolution and uh, its consequences for the world, you could look at the spread of education and medicine and you can cite those as positive things if you want to. I would argue that, you know, they were there largely to benefit the British and only incidentally everyone else. Um, but in the early modern period, you can't, they're not building canals, world-changing canals for the indigenous people. They're, they're not, you know, they're not spreading education. No, Ireland is a great they're, example. They're, they're awed by what what they see in Asia. Yes. I mean, yes. on the yes, contrary. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, blown away. Completely yeah, yeah, blown absolutely. away. But, even in Ireland, you know, the first English communists that go over end up converting to Catholicism, speaking Irish and dressing as dark. And so there's, the, you know, it's it in the early modern period, you cannot adopt that theological narrative, that latest narrative of Britain shaping the world and improving it, which so many historians have done. It just defies it. And so I thought um, that that's a great way to say that that narrative just doesn't fit, certainly not for the 300 years at the beginning of the British Empire. You could argue that for the 20th century. That's that's up to you. Um, um, was Churchill good and bad, you know, and all of that sort of stuff. But yeah, uh, it's, you know, the empire of the early modern period, it's, it's yeah, it's coercive, it's exploitative, it displaces indigenous and non-European people for the profit and the advantage of, of England and later Great Britain. And so um, I, hopefully that will help to rebalance the the debate slightly. Um, and, um, and and those critics who, who, who call that unfair will... Get challenge challenge me on what I've said rather than what what you think is unfair about you know um, uh, your own arguments about empire, um, which just do not translate to the early modern period at all. So um, so yeah, the reception I, it's created a, a conversation I think, and um, uh, I think as scholars that's all we can hope for amongst our readers. Yeah, well, I, I think it's a it's a great intervention, and um, you know, factoring in de uh, defiance, but also these these understandings of. Um, uh, desperation and precarity of of the imperial project in this era so yeah. but, but you know we, we just have to look today if you look at the imperial project of america for example which we can often see in front of our eyes you know we know it's replete with setback and disaster and you know everything from vietnam to uh afghanistan and iraq and and, and elsewhere you know very very rarely is any uh you know imperial project a straight success um it has to accommodate the the presence and the histories and the lives of other people in, 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 in lots of different ways. Absolutely. So you've been really generous with your time. Um, I've got two questions before I let you go. The, the standard new books debriefing questions. Um, first, can you suggest two books for the audience? Two books on this topic? Uh, what, whatever or you want. two books the, I'm reading at the moment? Uh, something um, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I'll do, I'll do one of each. Let me see. Um, this week I've just finished um, Rashid Khalidi's um, uh, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. Obviously, there's uh, a lot going on at the moment. I want to educate myself on that. Um, that's, uh, I mean, that, that places the wider conflict in the framework of colonialism, settler colonialism. Um, and so wherever you fall on, on that issue, that's just a fantastic book and a really really interesting book to read i think it's it's it it's certainly as a historian of empire and colonialism it it, it made a lot of sense to me um um and uh, sarah roy's uh, got a book um uh, i think it's about 10 years old now uh, but it's uh, a failing peace which again is about the israel palestine conflict and uh looks at the lives of people in gaza which is just incredible I'm, so if you're I'm, looking I'm, for I, books... miss, I miss the rashid khalidi was the first author the second author was oh yeah uh, sarah roy s-a-r-a roy sarah roy uh it's a really yeah slightly uh it's quite a tough read but uh it's a very honest very honest book so uh those are things i've been reading this week um but uh, you know in terms of 
uh, past couple of weeks um, uh, really fantastic two fantastic books on on the idea of empire um, uh, Philip Stern uh, a historian over at Duke uh, released his uh, Empire Incorporated uh, roughly around the same time as my book uh, uh, feels a feels a friend and it's a fantastic book um, it's about how uh, we look at the British state or the British crown as being the main engine of of imperialism, but actually corporations, trading companies were. So obviously you can see how I find that. As you you point out, that goes all the way back to Ireland, right? Yes, exactly. The British British state couldn't do it, so they had to... Yeah, so they uh, outsource it to, you know, the Corporation of London, you know, Londonderry in Northern Ireland. Uh, That was a a London colonization and plantation project. Uh, That's really brilliant. Um, And um, the other book I read, really fantastic, is uh, a new one by Charlotte Lydia Riley. She's a historian here at University of Southampton. She has a fantastic book called Imperial Island that released a couple of months ago. Uh, Imperial Island is in uh, um, the British Isles. Mm -hmm. And she looks at the legacy of empire today. uh, Well, the late 20th early 21st century and how we are essentially living in a post-imperial landscape grappling with the legacy of empire but not just how's that how's how's that going for you (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) not just on the world but actually that empire's impact on on our domestic history right now and our politics and and in terms of race and 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 brexit the the dreaded b word is is probably so i can highly recommend them for anyone loosely interested in 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 any aspect of empire they're two cracking books that have come out this year um yeah great and, my recommendation. And, and finally what are you working on now and what can we hope to see from you next oh, oh okay so um you, you told us I, you got you got decades more c- coming so <laughs> <laughs> i decades years to live but not decades of ideas so i'm really interested in um sticking with the early modern period and i'm, I'm starting to look at um, we often think of uh, Europe as discovering the rest of the world. There's been some really interesting work done lately. Um, Caroline Dodds-Pennock, for example, had a book out, Savage Shores, that shows how you know the rest of the world started to discover Europe as well. It's a kind of mutual discovery. I'm really interested in the, the various um, foreign uh, non-European embassies that arrived in Europe from across the world. Um, there's a great 15th century Venice where suddenly from out of nowhere an Ethiopian uh, uh, embassy rocks up to Venice and everyone's freaked out, no idea that the uh, Africans could reach Europe and that Ethiopia had any kind of global ambitions and um, it's the kind of beginning of um, of the Mediterranean uh, engagement with Ethiopia and, and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, you've got an ambassador from Brazil in the 16th century um, that's fettered around the Netherlands and um, uh, helps to challenge uh, Dutch uh, uh, the Dutch challenge of power against the Portuguese. It's largely Headed by the Congo and the Congolese Kingdom, um, which is fantastic. Uh, ambassadors from Persia arriving in England, Englishmen, uh, the Shirleys who go out in the, to the Mediterranean end up in Persia, become fall into favour with the court and are appointed as Persia's ambassadors to England, open up new silk trade routes for the Levant Company and the East India Company. So it's this great way in which you know the the expansion of Europe in the early modern period is not always from Europe. It's often uh, uh, facilitated or, or even begun by forces outside of Europe who uh, who kind of pull Europe out for the often for their own benefit and, and, and agendas. So I'm particularly interested in that. Uh, the other thing, um, I'm but, going to... but, but by the way, on that note, yeah. and this is a little after your time period. But the first uh, crowned head of state to circumnavigate the world, King David Kalakaua of Hawaii, my uh, my home islands, and uh, um, died. And the first 
place he went was Meiji, Japan, and then uh, Bangkok to talk to the um, uh, remember it was Rama the Fourth. Rama the Fourth or Rama the Fifth, who were engaged in defensive modernization, but then made his way through Europe and and dined with Queen Victoria and the royal family, and was was greeted as a crowned head of state, and uh, was discovering you know, it's the the Hawaiian discovery of the world, and then brought back all sorts of Victorian styles um, to Hawaii. So the the only royal palace on American soil is um, Iolani Palace, which he built. And it's a it's a Victorian style palace, built out of lava rock and mined coral reef. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, That's yeah, an amazing but, story. Incredible. Yeah. But it just goes to show, you know, that, that it's just you know, even the de- after decades of you know scholarship in world and global history, I think there are still these big entrenched narratives of Europe expanding out into the world that, as successful as our fields have been, have still not managed necessarily to entirely sort of dissolve those of. Of uh, uh, of their kind of dominance, so um, so that's good. The the other one, a brief mention, is that I'm really interested in the lives of rulers after they've been deposed by the British Empire, uh, and are often very rarely. This is the few redeeming features of the of the British Empire. Very rarely were uh, heads of state uh, killed, but they're often exiled into different parts of the British Empire. And so, looking at the kind of as a kind of character study of power and the loss of power, and how does one accommodate to that? whilst now living in a new world of kind of British imperialism. And and there's some great stories of people often, you know, uh, trying to return and, and reclaim power. Some do very briefly. Some live out their days uh, um, smoking opium to, uh, until uh, into an early grave. And, and so this is a, a really, I'd love to do a series of profiles and sketches of these people who have lost these often emperors and sultans, but all, even chiefs and, you know, 150 years before Nelson Mandela was on Robben Island. Some of his uh, ancestors were there exiled during the frontier wars of the Cape Colony and, and just looking at, yeah, how you reconcile someone who's having massive amounts of power and suddenly being um, uh, deposed and exiled. Yeah. So, well, the, 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 yes. Burmese, the Burmese king who was exactly. uh, exiled yes. to India. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, Absolutely. In, in terms of American empire, uh, uh, the Marcoses who wound up in Honolulu. <laughs> mm. After, that's, after, that's a, yes, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, actually uh, yeah. My, <laughs> little family history. My my mom was the Marcos's realtor after they were uh, <laughs> into exile. And, oh, really? And yeah, yeah. She um she rent she uh, secured them a place to rent and a state to rent, but was never able to sell them a house because mm. it's Honolulu, and the closets are so small, and Imelda had all of these. <laughs> shoes <laughs> and so they kept sneering so anyway hey si- single mom in the 1980s can't hate on the hustle business Brilliant. is apolitical but uh just yeah it. just but but it, but it's it's that phenomenon uh, i mean it's happens in the american empire so um the marcuses uh lon Nol, the former mm-hmm. uh dictator of cambodia winds up also winds up in hawaii and um what do these people do yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah, we'll well, hey, see. David, th- thank you so much for chatting with me today. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I I could go on for another hour. And I, I do want listeners to know that there are so many amazing stories in this book. It is fantastic for the big picture and gives and makes us do a re, re, uh, rethink of the historiography. But it's also just like captivating yarns one after another after another. And I had several that I wanted to bring up, but um, uh, I, I think that maybe my favorite was uh, Thomas and Philip Warner, which was oh, yeah. the story of two brothers, which just is 
mm. fascinating and just horrifying. Yeah. Um, really. So I'm, we don't have time to go into it, but readers <laughs> can get out there, get into this book. I mean, it's, it's just fantastic. So um, thank, thank you. you so much for chatting with me today. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate it and uh, appreciate the words as well. It's really kind. Yeah. So this has been a conversation with David Viviers of the University of Bangor about the great defiance, how the world took on the British Empire out with Penguin in 2023. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History. Thank you for listening.